85% of adults say they regularly experience stress with half recognising that they are too stressed. We need to talk about anxiety. This autumn, we'll be looking at some of the different forms of anxiety and the issues that can be on our minds. Jesus had a lot to say about our mental well-being, and we believe his gospel is the very best solution to dealing with anxiety. Part of my job, I, I assess people to see if they need to be in, in hospital for their mental health issues. And, and we're seeing um, children as young as kind of 12. Um, and for me personally, that's my experience. Others have, have assessed people younger and we're seeing that just more and more a prevalence of this anxiety um, from school, from family life, from friendship groups. Do you think there's also an element of stigma as well? People don't want to talk about mental health or it's a topic that's discussed but not about me. I think so, yeah. I think um, we would quite happily talk about a physical injury that we've received and there'll probably be sometimes a bit of pride with that. I've played for, you know, I broke my leg doing this and we'll all laugh about it or joke about it or oh, that was silly. But to say, actually, I've I spent the weekend in bed feeling really depressed. I was mentally unwell. You know, I wasn't just physically, I was mentally unwell. Um, that's a really difficult thing to say um, because it's so hidden and it's been hidden for a long time within society um, and it has wider impact. And I've really, like I said, I've really struggled with that. And my, my whole job is around not to discriminate or to recognize stigma and, and, and break stigma down. Yeah, I found myself just thinking about this and this conversation, realizing that I'm carrying that. There's a, I've, I'm carrying, I'm feeling the stigma of, of being mentally unwell. And I've started to understand how, how much more that needs to be done in regards to breaking it down. Within church, I know there'll be, you know, there'll be people that haven't talked about their mental health that are on medications for mental health, are seeing therapists, um, having to meet with friends regularly for, for anxiety, stress, um, depression, and and we don't talk about it. It's hidden. It is hidden, and I think there's a real danger. And I've seen the danger in that for myself, hiding away um, and not talking about it, has caused me to feel worse. Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to Emmanuel. Um, particularly if you are listening to us this morning in uh, Hove Villas, uh, Oasis, Shoreham, and a particular shout out to my home crew in the marina. Um, interestingly, you join us in our On Your Mind series, a series about anxiety, and I'm speaking on mental illness today. And just to be very frank, uh, my biggest source of anxiety for the last few weeks has been the fact that I'm actually speaking on it. Um, I'll tell you why. It's because I would not normally be standing here speaking to you. Um, I'm the guy, I obviously our pastoral care here, and uh, I'm the guy who gets in to people's lives. I'm not up here. I'm down with the people in the pits and the valleys of life. And I, do you know what? That is a privilege to me. I get to hear the stories no one gets to hear. I get to sit with um, heroes of faith that would never have been seen or celebrated. Um, I've got one coming up for you that I'm really excited sharing with you. But I hear hundreds of stories of ordinary people living extraordinary lives of faith. And um, I also get to see how, it, how wonderfully Jesus makes the difference as well for people in what, particularly in this area of mental illness, has to 
just be so profound and so deep. And uh, I think that's probably why I'm up here, is that I get to share that out of lives, but also out of Scripture this morning. So um, first thing I want to do is literally um, give you a story. Uh, we managed to capture a video from a couple who are in our hope site, and uh, particularly uh, Tim Hutchinson, who's married to Alison, is going to share his story this morning. And uh, to be honest, I'll let him just share it with you now. Hi, Tim. Thanks for um, coming in uh, today. Um, so great to hear your story the other day. And uh, just thank you for being willing to come and share it with us and those who are watching uh, today. Um, just really helpful for those just to give us a bit of context of why you're here talking about mental illness. What actually just give us a bit of your story. Okay, thanks, Steve. Um, well, my story uh, goes back to uh, 1986 when I um, moved to Brighton uh, with work. And uh, at that workplace, I met a beautiful woman, Alison, uh, who's now my wife. Um, and I wasn't a Christian at that time, um, but Alison was. And she came to Emmanuel, or Clarendon, as it was called at the time. And she brought me along. And uh, in 1987, I was saved. And uh, we were still in love. And in 1988... Uh, we got engaged and got married in in the in the villas, and that was the start of a, yeah a great bright future for us uh, as happily married young couple. In the following year, 1989, Alison started to experience um, symptoms of acute mental illness, and um, eventually she was. Uh, sectioned, uh, she became an inpatient, uh, she was diagnosed with, with schizophrenia and um, that was the start of um, yeah, a pretty turbulent time. Um, Alison uh, would make a recovery and come home and then would relapse again and uh, be really, really distressed and be taken back into hospital and on a number of occasions she was sectioned. Uh, during the first 10 years of our marriage, uh, Alison spent five years as, a, as an inpatient. Uh, then in 1999, Alison was in hospital again, um, but through the help of a really helpful psychiatrist, she, um, she got on the right medication and um, made a big improvement and uh, was able to be at home. And uh, since then has, has not been an inpatient again. So that's you know, 20 years uh, plus that she's been well and has been at home uh, and has been doing really well. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's a summary of our story. That's great, Tim. So obviously the obvious question for me is, how did you keep going in those 10 years? How did your how do you even keep your faith, really, with all that was going on? Um, you know, how how do you keep going through all of that? Yeah, I, I guess we we relied on the church family to support us. Uh, we had a, a great pastor in Alan Preston. Um, we uh, relied on a, a great psychiatrist. We met. Um, a psychiatrist uh, through the church. Uh, she she came along to uh, to Clarendon, and uh, she suggested that I 
um, sought out a consultant called Dr. Richard Allison, who was really, really helpful. Um, and yeah, to, to stay knitted into the church was important for me as a, as a carer. I was a carer for Alison to, uh, yeah, to be um, maintained and to be um, kept my head above water. What did your faith look like in that, personally? Yeah, well, I was well, first few years. I was a I was a young Christian. It was uh, it was a bit a bit of a, a shock to the system. It wasn't what I was expecting. Um, but I I, I learned to um, to trust in trust in God uh, in in all circumstances, I guess, and uh, to lean into Him. And to put my hope in in Jesus for uh, for Alison, for her well-being, for her healing, uh, to put my hope in Jesus for salvation, and to put my hope in Jesus for eternity. That was the uh, the, the key thing for me. And how, what did that practically look like? Yeah, I was. I, I guess I've tried to always stay in the Word. Uh, to to read the Bible every day, um, to um, just to get a godly perspective on on the world and what's ha- what's happening. Um, and for for me, um, my personal times of worship are, are very important. Um, there's a, a Stuart Townend song, uh, "There Is a Hope," uh, which has been very important to me over the years, and I've often come back to to times of worship to uh, yeah to recalibrate and reset my gyroscopes as it were to be able to care for Alison and to look after her that's amazing that's really <laughs> wonderful I suppose the other, my last question is just what does hope look like for you and Alison now um, well I still pray uh, regularly for Alison's complete healing, for her to be completely free of the symptoms and off the medication and well. Um, but my hope in Christ for eternity hasn't, hasn't changed and um, I know that Christ will support us and be our rock uh, you know, throughout our lives and uh, whether... Whether Alison is completely healed or not, um, Christ will be there and he'll be supporting us and uh, one day we'll, we'll be in glory and we'll be in glory together. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Great. Well, I hope you understand why I wanted you to see that story. Um, just an example of great faith, uh, a godly man who's learned how to be a husband um, and just endure and faithfully love his wife. It's amazing. Um, but for me, for this morning, what's really helpful is that Tim describes three hopes in that story. The first hope is the hope in mental health services. The second is a hope in the church. And the third is a hope in Christ. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time unpacking the first two, just to set the scene, really, uh, before we really get to the Bible and we look at what it is to hope in Christ. So I hope you can track with me. Um, again, just looking at mental health itself, uh, if you look at the news daily at the moment, you'd feel like we're 
really in a bit of an epidemic, um, that mental health has just gone crazy. Um, that actually isn't true. <laughs> um, the type of mental health they call serious and enduring um, has actually not changed a lot in, in, in the last few decades, really. Um, but what has changed is, one, I think the awareness of mental health. There have been some great um, sort of appeals and um, exposure of mental health, which I think has removed some of the stigma of it, so we, we hear about it more. But also, there has been two significant um, disproportional rises. One, in the young. Um, if you get to see that video interview with Dan, uh, again, um, you'll see he, the thing as a health professional, he's a health professional, he's finding shocking at the moment is that he is referring young people as young as 12 and 13 to acute medical uh, mental health situations. And you've got to think, wow, what's going on with society? We, we must be doing something wrong for that to be happening. But the, the other end of the, the spectrum is um, the rise in dementia. And uh, for me personally and my family, that's where we are probably walking through mental illness. My, my mum has been diagnosed with early onset dementia. Um, so we're living that now. And again, you, you realize how hard mental illness is, the suffering of it. You know, to see the mother you've always known start to lose sense of who she is, who you are, constantly not know where she is and distressed about it, it's just really hard. And I think any mental illness across that whole spectrum is that, that it, you just lose the person in it, yet they're still in front of you. Or they lose who you are, and yet you're still in front of them. Or they lose any sense of reality of the world, which again is so distressing and causes such distress. So we're talking about something that's really, really tough. Um, and it, then that forces the question, well, why, why is a good God allowing this? It, it can cause you to just question the goodness of God. And I had the real privilege of being able to talk to another Tim in our fellowship who is a consultant psychiatrist um, in the city um, of Brighton. And um, would love to have videoed him, but I think because of his role, um, he's, he's got to be quite careful, I think. And, um, but was very happy for me to share uh, his thoughts. Uh, he emailed me some thoughts, which I, I just thought was so good, I just had to share them uh, with you. Um, in his response to what is God's response to mental health, he says this. He says, God is a merciful father who wants the best for all his children. So one must assume the distress and suffering associated with mental illness will not please him. Rather, it affords him the opportunity to reach into the individual's circumstances for the better. God's response, in my view, is to provide healing and comfort to the mentally ill through the people who help them. Professionals of faith or of no faith are increasingly accepting of the spiritual dimensions to human existence and allow for this in their conceptualization of resources available to help their patients they see. I also believe that God, through the intellectual and creative talents he gives scientists and researchers, intervenes by enabling advancements in pharmacological and medical treatments for the benefit of the mentally ill. I also feel that as mental illness often involves existential concerns and searching for the meaning of the individual experiences, it offers him an opportunity to meet his children 
and offer them succor and affirmation as they work their way towards recovery. Two big things Tim says there is, one, um, God really cares. And we see that in the Bible too, um, particularly in the picture of when Jesus is going to all the cities and the towns of the area. There's a, a, a verse in Matthew, we've been looking at this last term, Matthew 9:36, and he says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You know, Jesus looks on crowds. You know, he looks on this city and has compassion. He sees our helplessness and our harassment, and he cares. In fact, the way he has cared is not only to provide mental health services, but as a shepherd, he has gone into the city. He has lived and felt the pain and distress of those who were helpless and harassed. And what's more than that, that we know in God's story, he then leaves the city, taking all their sin and shame, all their brokenness. He carries it up a hill and he allows God to be angry about it, to punish him for everything that was wrong with the world. And in that moment, punished it to the point where it is now dealt with, where the sun cries out, it is finished. There is a finished work of Christ here that the shepherd has provided for the sheep. Do you know what? He now sends his church to do the same. The, the second point Tim makes is that God has given us intelligence and creativity, compassion for individuals to train like psychiatrists, psychotherapists, counsellors, mental health, social workers and nurses to bring medical help and care for the mentally ill. I'm aware that due to the cuts in resources in the NHS, and there's been an overarching strategy in the NHS to lessen hospital beds, to put the burden of the care of people in this nation on the community, the big society. We'll also be very aware that actually the big society or community is not really equipped or able to deal with that. And so people are falling through. We see in our social action, Friends First, we're regularly dealing with people who are struggling with mental illness because the society hasn't caught them. And obviously as a pastor, I see some of those situations again and again. But it doesn't mean the mental health services are wrong. It doesn't mean that they're not there to give good. In fact, as we see in Tim and Alison's story, they had to persevere for 10 years. But through that 10 years, they found a grace. They found a trained psychologist who got them, who got Alison, who was able to lead her to a medication that brought her healing, rest. I mean, you can give up. If you hit mental health services and you find frustration or it doesn't work, you can say, ah, oh, gone. But then you're actually avoiding a grace. You're pushing away a grace of God to you. As a Christian, you can say, oh, no, I'm going to go to God now. And we'll get to that in a minute. But actually, no, you must fight for the grace that God's given you through these people. I think also when you're fighting, we shouldn't be angry or get frustrated with the people in it. As we've said, these people have given their lives to training. And they are willing to sit every day in the world, the suffering of mental illness. In fact, I just want to honor anyone who is listening to this who works in that mental health service. I want to say thank you. Thank you for giving your life. 
for willing to get up every day and live with people in suffering, uh, dealing with the frustrations of the resources around you, getting to the bigger picture of what you're doing. I want to say we want to honour you, and I encourage church, let's honour them. Whenever you touch that world, if you've got people you know, we said we've got psychiatrists, mental health social workers, nurses in our midst, let's encourage them. Let's thank them. Let's not lose hope in the NHS. But as I said, there are gaps. And this gap gives the church an amazing opportunity to be all that she was meant to be, to be the help to the helpless and harassed. Again, my friend Tim, when I ask him, what should the church be doing about mental health, says this. He says, the church has to be the embodiment of God's grace, mercy and love. The church has to proactively signal that it wants to support those suffering with mental health problems in practical, everyday ways and being a source of theological informed comfort. The church should never be like Job's friends, more interested in condemnatory, recriminatory analysis of sin and guilt. The church should be a haven away from the storms of life. The church should be a willing partner in community-based initiatives to support and facilitate recovery. The church can provide a listening ear and engage in theologically informed health promotion and well-being projects. The church also needs to be there for the bereaved, particularly in situations where, where self-inflicted loss of life has occurred in a family. In essence, the church is the working hand of God on earth and God's comforting hand in all circumstances. You know, Tim makes a few challenges there to the church. And I want to get behind that and say, yes, church, are we being that? You know, when he talks about Job's counsellors, the church can easily adopt a posture, I know I can, of when you're sat with someone with mental illness, looking for the problem, pointing out what they need to do, which is exactly what Job's counsellors did. Well-meaning, do-gooding, but ultimately they get real telling off because what they were missing was actually... Job's oppression and distress was caused miraculously, mysteriously. And often with mental illness, it can be like that. It just can come on a person with no reason or warning. I've seen that so many times. There's, there's no way to understand it, so don't try. Lean into the person's life. You know, we have a mantra in our pastoral care team of love, no speak, do for the very reason to guard us from being the church that points the finger or tells you what to do. We want to love and know before we ever get near speaking and telling you what to do. And that, I hope that if you're in this room today and you are struggling with mental illness, I want you to know that if you go forwards today, if you find someone or talk to someone and say, I need help, you will find love. You will find acceptance. You will get people who are celebrating the fact that actually we get your struggle and the courage it takes for you to live every day. I, I want you to hope that that's what you'll get first. And then I hope you'll get people who want to get to know you, who walk with you. Before we actually may have sometimes some things to say and have for you to do that will help you. But I really hope you get loved and known before any of that gets near you. 
Um, he also alludes to the important ability for the church to be this community of help and comfort, to bring truth. Again, when I speak to the, well, the hundreds of people I've walked with, but certainly even the last week, I've caught up with about 10 or so people who I've probably walked with over the last 30 years. And all of them, bar none, would say how important the church, just as Tim did, has been for them to bring truth. Again, with mental illness, you can lose reality. You can lose a sense of truth. You can live in a world of chaos. And the idea that someone who loves you, whose voice you hear and trust, can break through the confusion and tell you, it's okay. God's with you. We love you. I mean, that, um, as one guy I spoke to, a good friend, said, it's like a gem. He said, I used to bat off, often was batting off the truths, but occasionally a gem would land and it would help me through. Let's not give up on bringing truth in love to those who are suffering because occasionally there will be a gem of peace and goodness for them. The other thing I've, we found, and myself and my wife Jane, we oversee the pastoral care at an event called New Day. It's like 7,000 young people. So we've been doing it nearly well, 15 years now. And what we have seen over the last 15 years is definitely the massive rise of mental health issues in young people, like huge, from 12 to 19, vast. But you know, God did something quite amazing this year. We did amazing things all over, physical healings, all of that. But the one thing he did was we oversee the medical team. And last year, our medical team, Christians volunteering to serve the event in, on their week off, doing what they do for job, they were run ragged last year. This year, they were quite happy and they were chilled. And I was like, what's going on? And they said, well, we've we just got a lot less work this year. I said, well, why? And at the end of the year, I, at the end of the week, I, we got to speak to one of the lead nurses. And she said, well, she said, it's because we haven't been having the mental health stuff. She said, last year, we had over 50 like, emergency calls that were mental health related. It's less than five this year. I was like, what? How, how's that happened? She said, I'll tell you what, she said, it's the, it's the churches, it's the youth teams. They're learning how to look after this stuff now. She said, they've got safety plans, they've worked with CAM services, they have built relationship with these kids all year. They know them now, the kids feel safe. They can be at this event now, the self-harm, you know, psychiatric problems, uh, feelings of suicide, it's all okay. They know what to do with it. Do you know what? I was like, okay, so if that can happen here, it can happen here in Brighton. You know, I came back going, man, we need to know this stuff. Church, you need to know. We can be such a difference. The NHS is burdened, like our medical team last year. We can, be the, we can remove some of that burden. We genuinely can help people. I came back, like I oversee all our pastoral structures. It, it, it reinvigorated me to say, right, we need to make sure we continue to develop our really strong structural pastors across this church that we have prayer teams every week, people of faith who believe that God can heal, that he's going to pray for mental illness. And we believe, and, and even on New Day, we saw some kids who were last year riddled with OCD or anorexia who this year are in a totally different place. Why? Because someone prayed. Someone loved them. Church, let's believe that for every Sunday. You know, if you're struggling again, please come forwards. Be prayed for. These people love praying for you. What's amazing with that as well is that they are the front door to everything else we offer in the church. Okay, you come forward whatever Sunday you want. 
you open a door to some other things. We have small groups. Again, massive. We build community where we love one another. You know, we have small groups that will feed and give meals to people who are in the real in the midst of difficulty, who will take them to hospital appointments and love them. We have small groups like that. It's a community, and it makes the difference. We have pastoral support teams, people we have trained to do the journey, to ask good questions, to know how to get to the, some of the underlying issues, to know what is appropriate, what you could actually do to come into some relief and freedom, that they have faith to take you out of the darkness and oppression of life and lead you into the light and the peace and the hope of Jesus. And we need to train more of them. If church, if you have that, if it excites you when I say that, please speak to us, speak to your site pastor, say, I want to be part of that, I want to be in that team, then please tell us. And we have redemption groups. Now, if you watch the video that's on YouTube with all the interviews, it's about an hour and 10 minutes. I tell you, it's worth the hour and 10 minutes. It's the best thing, better than Netflix, okay? You give an hour and 10 minutes to that. The stories on there and the people on there are courageous and brave, but they share real stories. But what they allude to is God makes a difference. And one girl on there talks about redemption. It's a group where we just make it a safe place to share your lives. And as a group, we, we allow the Holy Spirit to say, what can we do? How can we walk from this darkness into this light and peace? And we'll be starting one of those groups in January. So if you want to interest in that, again, speak to your site teams, uh, your pastoral leaders and elders. They'll be very happy to find you a place there. Do you know why I've built all that? Why we have, as an eldership, put our energies into all those things? It's because, and I felt a mandate to this, I... We do this because I want to say to the city, and if you're listening here and you're even not coming to our church, I want you to say, we love you. We have built a community that wants to serve you, that wants to really care about your being helpless and harassed, that wants to start a journey with you from your place right now to a place of restoration and peace. As, as, as Jesus said in Matthew 9, 26, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We explored that concept a few weeks ago, but he means it. He wants to bring you rest. I want to encourage you, if you're watching now, or you're sitting in the room right now, and like Dan said earlier, that you are stuck with the stigma of it. You're stuck in the shame, the sense of shame of mental illness, which is not yours anyway to come out, to tell someone. Because in that moment, you start a journey. And I know you have to be brave and courageous, but I want to encourage you, don't live there anymore. You don't need to. Don't try and do this on your own. It doesn't work. You know it doesn't work. Let us be family to you. Let us be friends to you. Let us help you make that journey and point to Jesus. And, and that's the last great hope for us, actually. And it's the one that obviously Tim talks about most in his story. This hope in Christ. I've got a few scriptures I want to read to you because I want you to get a sense of what is that hope? What is that hope in Christ? This is in Colossians 1.27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I know, crazy, but Christ in you, that when we ask Jesus into our life, 
what comes into us is a hope, a peace, a strength that is glorious. And it's a mystery. 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know fully, even as I have been fully known. When we talk about love and know, there is this one Jesus that we can't quite figure right now. We see dimly. But as we increasingly know him, as we get his strength, we get his love, we get his peace, as we pursue him. And yet one day we will fully see him, as Tim says, the glory of being able to see Jesus fully one day. But all along we are fully known, understood and cared for. And he goes on to say, so faith, hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Hope is massive. But actually, as you heard Tim say, knowing the love of Jesus is greater. Just as the scripture says. And then 1 Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Again, when you hear Tim in his story talk about worship and how it recalibrates him, that he can know joy. In that 10 years, in the midst of all that, he comes to a place where he sees Jesus and worships him and knows glory, joy. That is a miracle. And yet it's what Jesus offers us. So these verses are not only a, a promise of great hope and joy, but they talk of this work of the Holy Spirit, this one coming inside of us who gives us strength and rest and joy. Again, church, if you are struggling, then even this morning, just say, Holy Spirit, just give me strength. Give me hope. Give me joy. Because it can make such a difference. As, as Tim was saying, it recalibrates me. It lifts my head. It helps me get through another day. This encounter with Jesus, the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's, it makes the difference. It gets me through. And it's interesting that... Um, Another psychiatrist, um, the talk I listened to, was talking about the classification of mental health, and he used this word, serious and enduring. And when I heard that, I thought, enduring, I've heard that before. I heard that before, and it was in this verse, Hebrews 12, it says, the enduring work of Christ. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, just so you know, you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses this morning, if you just look a little bit further, you will find one story like we've just heard. You will. It says, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also, us as well, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Actually, whether we have mental illness or not, we are all called to set to run a race of endurance. One that's personally marked for us. And looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, there's a lot there. 
you know, again, mental health, we have to despise the shame of it and run to Jesus. But the word I got was, he endured the cross. Now, a good friend of mine who's an elder in his church, Neville Jones, about 15 years ago, shared this verse. And he just asked the question, so how long did Christ endure the cross? Yeah, what's his input into us? What's his commitment to us? He said, was it when he was on the cross? Dying. Taking all the sickness, all the shame, all the guilt, until it was finished, pouring out his life. Was that when he endured the cross so that we could be healed and set free? Or was it when he had to carry the cross up the hill, being mocked, rejected, spat on, ridiculed, when those that could have helped him, those he loved, weren't around, just left on his own, isolated? Was it then that he endured the cross? Or was it as a young boy, when he would share, stand up and share the scriptures powerfully to great teachers, like Isaiah, when it says that someone would grow up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, have no majesty, would be despised and rejected by men, become a man of sorrows, reject, acquainted with grief. I mean, he would never have known grief, acquainted with grief as one from men who hide their faces. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. When Jesus is reading that, is that when he began to endure the cross? And you know, when Neville was sharing this, I suddenly thought, oh, I don't know, but I'll share it anyway. I had this image, you know, the father and the son made all creation. So was there a moment in creation, before we were even here, where the father said to the son, now go and build that hill? The father knowing that the son would walk up that hill one day. Did the son look back at the father and know what he was doing? Was that when he endured the cross, before he even stepped into the world, stepped into our pain and suffering, was that when he endured the cross? I'll tell you one thing, whatever and whenever, it shows that he was there to endure. He was in for the long haul. If you're struggling with mental illness, if it's been for a long time or your loved ones are, you need to know this today. He's in for the long haul. Like Tim says, whether she's, Alison is healed or not, he will be enough for me and he'll be enough for her because one day, we will worship him in glory. No mentalness, no grief, no sorrows, no nothing, just him. And that will be enough. I just wanted to read the song <laughs> that uh, Tim mentioned, There is a Hope. I suppose because I couldn't think of a better way of helping us maybe identify with what we're talking about here, this hope. Okay? And my prayer is actually that as I read this, it will cause a hunger for you for this hope. So I'm going to read it to you now. And I'm praying even now that the Holy Spirit will do something in our hearts right now. Okay? It says, 
There is a hope that burns within my heart that gives me strength for every passing day. A glimpse of glory now revealed in meager part, yet drives all doubt away. I stand in Christ with sins forgiven and Christ in me, the hope of heaven. My highest calling, my deepest joy is to make his will my home. There is a hope that lifts my weary head, a consolation strong against despair, that when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find the Saviour there. Through present sufferings, future's fear, he whispers courage in my ear, for I am safe in everlasting arms, and they will lead me home. There is a hope that stands the test of time, that lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave, to see the matchless beauty of a day divine when I behold his face. When sufferings cease and sorrows die, and ever longing satisfied, then joy unseekable will flood my soul, for I am truly home. You know, when I'm sat with my mum yesterday, the biggest comfort for her right now, only really saved in the last few years, is that as she slips into this thing they call dementia, that on the other side of that is this home and this face. And when I pray with her, as I did yesterday, you know, that really does bring a hope. And it really does bring a comfort. That she is loved, loved by us. We keep saying it, but she's also loved by one who is greater, whose love will be hers eternally. What a great hope. So as we maybe come to communion now, I want us to remember what we're coming to. I'm praying that our hearts are readied to what we're coming to. Whether it is our struggle is mental illness, or living ones of mental illness, or actually our struggles are other, or our sin and shame is different. But when we come to the body and blood of Jesus, remember as we take it that there is a final work, a great work that has been done that will bring us peace.